0: The time is now. Volume 4, episode 85, this is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor and the host of this podcast. What a week this has been. Figuring that you might want to take a break from all of the vaccine and mandatory vaccine policy discussion this week, there's a bunch of other really important issues that many companies have on their minds right now. For today's purposes, if you are one of those companies who got payroll protection program loans, PPP loans, you are probably in the process of thinking about how you are going to apply, when you are going to apply for that loan money to be forgiven. So. I've got a couple of great guests on today's podcast episode to talk about all you wanted to know about the PPP process as well as what requirements exist to try to have your PPP loan monies forgiven. Joining me today, first is Andrew Howe. Andrew is a CPA with a focus on tax and advisory services for the accounting firm of Bergen KDV. Bergen KDV is a public accounting firm that provides traditional services as well as wealth management, business advisory, technology solutions and workforce management services. Also joining me is my partner here at Cozen O'Connor, Stephen Dickinson, who is with our business law group and is the co-chair of the firm's international group. Steve's practice primarily centers around um, domestic and international business transactions for both United States and international companies. So hopefully, Andrew and Stephen will be able to uh, give you a little bit of useful information on this issue to bring back to your companies. Andrew and Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. So Andrew, let me uh, start with you. Um, And that was really just a flip of the coin at this point. Uh, For those who are either new to the whole PPP process or simply just forgotten it already, here we are in middle of December. Let's start with some very brief background on what the PP is and how we actually got here, if you could.
1: Sure, so the Paycheck Protection Program was created back in late March uh, by way of the CARES Act, and began funding these loans, which were were calculated as uh, approximately 10 weeks of a business's prior year's payroll uh, that began funding in early April. And the program remained uh, open for applications through August, at which time new applications were no longer accepted. And and during that period from late March, early April to August, the, the plan was under constant revision either by regulatory agencies or through legislative intervention. And so I guess some of the the key things that happened along the way is that immediately borrowers were invited to apply. And one of the items that they had to certify to on their application is that current economic uncertainties made this loan necessary for continued operations of the entity. And if you think back to where we were in the spring of this year, I think you can make a case for almost universally all businesses that the current economic uncertainties could make this loan necessary for them to, to survive. Uh, so a very vague and ambiguous criteria for, for eligibility.
0: Any clarification so, on that standard that was issued or has it just been left uh, open and vague like that?
1: I, I still think it's, it's very much open to impre- interpretation. Uh, I think we'll, we'll. I think we'll touch on later in the podcast the 3509 and 3510 forms that that some of the large PPP borrowers are going to be required to complete uh, to allow the SBA to evaluate that need certification. But there hasn't really been a, a benchmarking criteria that the SBA has provided that these are the situations that a business would would encounter that would uh, exemplify need or not. But it, it, it was really one of the significant uh, components of this because a lot of businesses were really unsure how to how to interpret that so if we have a large amount of cash sitting in our checking account uh, do we have need if we are uncertain at what point in time the pandemic is going to affect us uh, does it have does it have to occur during the eight weeks after receipt of our loan or if we know that we our industry is going to be infected, but we're not going to feel it until further on down the road. Do we still qualify? Well, about uh, three to four weeks into the program, the SBA issued kind of an uh, ominous piece of interpretation stating that if a borrower didn't need the funds, they had until I believe it was May 7th or May 6th or May 7th to return the funds. And if you do so, you would not be subjected to a federal criminal fraud inquiry if you didn't actually need the loan. And that instantly sent a lot of borrowers into a tailspin because they still didn't know how to evaluate whether or not they needed the loan. And uh, that, that deadline to return the funds got extended by a week. And at the 11th hour, the SBA issued guidance stating that they would provide safe harbor for this need certification to borrowers with loans of less than $2 million because based on the size of the loan, it would be assumed that they didn't have access to large capital markets. So that's a big win for all the borrowers that were uncertain how their need would be evaluated by the SBA. Uh, And to take it even a step further, the guidance issued stated that if the SBA evaluated and determined that your business did not need the loan and you're over that $2 million threshold, you'd be able to repay the funds and would not be subjected to a federal criminal fraud inquiry or referral to other regulatory agencies. So that was, I'd say the first big milestone in the development of the PPP. The second one occurred in in the month of June with passage of the PPP Flexibility Act. And unfortunately it came fairly late in the game for borrowers that were in uh, in the early application process and received their funds early in the month of April because they were already either uh, close to or past the expiration of the eight week covered period that we were all operating under the assumption that we uh, we were limited to for the amount of time that we could spend the funds. The PPP Flexibility Act did a couple of different things. It extended that eight week window to 24 weeks. So in many instances, borrowers that were not uh, subject to uh, large layoffs or furloughs of their employees, it was like hitting the easy button because all of a sudden now they've got, um, you know, in many cases in excess of twice the amount of payroll cost that uh, would be required to obtain full forgiveness on their PPP. Um, it also extended the time period before loans would go into deferral status. And initially it was going to be six months of deferral before the um, Loans, loan payments had to begin start being made. With the passage of the PPP, it extended it to ten months from the end of the covered period. So, if we're using a twenty four week period covered period, that it puts us into a deadline of somewhere around August twenty twenty one for loans that were taken out in the month of April. So, uh, a lot of a lot of good things uh, that were seemed very very complex in the month of May. Uh, became a little bit simpler in the month of June by passage of the Flexibility Act, and and the
0: word simpler is unquestionably a relative term for many of us for many of us yeah. uh, dealing with these issues uh steve i want to uh, bring you into the discussion as well and i want to um piggyback on uh, the introduction of the forgiveness idea certainly companies that applied for and received ppp loans presumably did so at least in part on the fact that the loans would be forgiven under certain circumstances what were the conditions uh, generally for loan forgiveness
2: well and that was another area of uncertainty uh the, the statute, when it was passed in March, you know, provided that these would be forgiven, and they, they set out some sort of broad framework for that. But there were a lot of questions, and we were dealing with a lot of companies that had questions on how the forgiveness process was going to work. And on a couple of occasions, the SBA promised that they would come out with rules, and then they buy date X, and then they would blow right by date X. And that happened at least a couple of times. And finally, they came out with some rules that started to provide some some guidance in terms of how it would work. But the the basic idea of the program was that um, you you got this loan based upon what your payroll was in the past, and you were going to be judged in terms of forgiveness based upon what your payroll was during this as Andrew was referring, originally eight-week and then extended to 24-week covered period. One of the reasons why it was extended from eight to 24 when Congress passed the amendment in June was that with so many companies cutting back on their workforce, uh, everybody was saying there's no way we can spend all this money on our payroll during eight weeks. We need more time. And and so Congress recognized that, and that was the, the impetus for extending it to 24 weeks. So it's a It's a eight or 10 page form that you have to fill out for forgiveness. But when you boil it down, it compares what your, not your payroll in terms of dollars, but your payroll in terms of full-time equivalent employees during this covered period was compared to your FTEs during one of two previous, what they're referred to as reference periods. One of them earlier in this year, one of them last year and the borrower gets to pick which one of those two is more favorable. And you essentially, the starting point is how much money did you spend during the covered period on eligible uses, which is payroll, rent, utilities, and interest on secured debt. And then you do this math of the FTE ratio, which the SBA refers to as the forgiveness ratio. Uh, And you compare the FTEs during the covered period to the FTEs during one of these two reference periods, and then you take that fraction and apply that fraction to the amount of money that you spent on permitted uses during the covered period, and then that dollar amount is the maximum amount that you would be eligible to have forgiven. Uh, There's a couple of additional exceptions and safe harbors that you know, are, are beyond the scope of what we probably make sense for us to talk about today. But broadly speaking, that's how it works, so that borrowers then by the end of that 24-week period would have uh, an idea of what their forgiveness numbers were going to be, depending on how long it took them to do the math and, and do the calculations. But as Andrew said, you you have 10 months after the end of the covered period to apply instead of that original six months, and consequently, you know, I'm still – working with borrowers. Um, now, uh, in fact, some banks you apply for forgiveness through the bank that made the loan and then they submit it on to the SBA. And there are some banks that are just now opening up their application process for forgiveness. Uh, I was speaking with somebody just the other day and her bank was just getting ready to start accepting applications. Um, and I think, you know, the, a lot of the banks said, well, people have 10 months, so, you know, we can sort of take our time and getting geared up to process these applications. So it's varied from lender to lender. Some lenders were right on top of it. And, and I think you could start applying in August sometime, I think was when they opened the, the portal. Um, and there were some banks that were ready to go shortly after that, but there were a lot of banks, including some of the really big banks that made the most PPP loans that, took a month, two months, you know, to to get ready and and geared up to start accepting applications.
0: So to be clear, there there is a deadline by which uh, companies have to apply for forgiveness?
2: You have to apply no later than 10 months after the end of your covered period. So that 24 weeks plus another 10 months. And if you don't apply by that point in time, then it can't be forgiven then it just converts into a regular loan and it's paid back um, over either two years or five years, depending on when the loan was made. That was another change that was made in June um, in that, in that act that Andrew mentioned um, at a 1% interest rate. Um, and, And so you have that long to apply for forgiveness and you don't start making payments until your forgiveness application is determined. And so if you waited 10 months, and then it took another say 3 or 4 months to get the forgiveness application processed. Uh you know, you could be late next year, potentially even longer before you'd have to start making those payments. Andrew.
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of a good segue into discussion on income taxability because if you think about the timing of when a calendar year business would file its tax return, um partnership and corporate and uh, S-corp returns are are due in March and C-corp returns are due in April and you can uh, apply for a six-month extension to file. But doing the math, if we wait until uh, the the last available moment, and we talk about 10 months from the end of the covered period, putting us in August of 2021, that's assuming that you applied for your PPP loan in April and you had until August to apply. So for many businesses, they may not apply for loan forgiveness, uh, under their obligations with their lender until the end of 2021. And then the SBA has the, the lender has uh, a period of time to approve the forgiveness. And then the SBA has a period of time to approve forgiveness.
0: So I want to follow up on that because you make a great point. We've been talking about the last few minutes, sort of the deadline by which companies have to apply. Um, is there, aside from the actual deadline, is there uh, some strategy going into when companies should apply? In other words, is there a reason to apply sooner rather than later? Is there some benefit to waiting a period of time before
1: you apply? What's the thinking there? Well, we, we've we been hoping that there could be a, a tax deferral strategy by waiting to apply, because as I w- was uh, alluding to, um, many taxpayers are not going to know whether uh, officially through a debt cancellation notice from the SBA that their loan is forgiven until after the extended due date of their income tax return. And so what looked like should be a possible avenue for deferring the timing of paying some income tax uh, was erased by way of a revenue ruling uh, that the IRS issued back in October, stating that regardless of when loan forgiveness is applied for or received, If a taxpayer expects to have their loan forgiven, they must recognize the the non-deductibility of the expenses used towards the PPP in the tax period in which the expenses were incurred and paid. So for calendar year taxpayers, that is going to be on their 2020 tax return, even though it may be a full year or even longer before they officially receive notice that their loan was forgiven. And... There, there are some other, I think, very viable reasons to wait to apply for loan forgiveness. Uh, we'll start with the small one. Um, there is stimulus legislation that is currently uh, being worked on in Congress that contains a provision that would allow for a streamlined application process for loans of less than 150000 We currently have a streamlined application for loans under 50000 And in that instance, the borrower does not need to take into consideration any reductions in full-time equivalents or rate of pay decreases in excess of 25%. And it it really eases the burden on the borrower of the uh, amount of calculations that are necessary to submit their application. Uh, And so just for reasons of simplicity, those borrowers may want to wait until we we have a new stimulus bill that could provide a, some relief for them. Additionally, if we have loans, well, uh, and that on
2: that on that point, we should note that the average amount of a PPP loan was around one hundred yeah. and fifty thousand. Yeah. So you, you could expect that,
0: this wasn't some arbitrary number.
2: Yeah, the, I forget the exact number, but it was one hundred and fifty and change. Basically, was the average yeah. loan amount. So they're yeah, basically they're, trying to knock out about half the loans from having to to do the the whole application process. And like I said before, it's an eight or ten page form. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that, and it was taking companies a lot of time to to fill it out. And so that that Andrew's right, that will be a big benefit for a lot of companies if that passes.
1: Yeah, and, and and Mike, that you were spot on when you said that's not an arbitrarily determined number. If you think of the administrative burden on the SBA and the U.S. Treasury to process the sheer number of loans that they are going to need to pour through uh, over the next year, this, this greatly takes the pressure off of them, which will hopefully increase the speed at which they're able to process these loan forgiveness applications. Now, another reason that a borrower may want to wait until... Uh, Further on down the road before applying for loan forgiveness is if they have a loan in excess of $2 million or loans with affiliated uh, companies in excess in the aggregate of $2 million, they know that their certification of need is going to be examined by the SBA. And we don't know a whole lot about that process so far. We do know that they're going to be required to submit a 3509 uh, for commercial entities or 3510 form. For nonprofit organizations, which is a a questionnaire with 21 uh, different items that the SBA believes will give them a good indication of whether or not that need existed. But we don't know what happens with that process after that. Uh, and I think that if a borrower has any concern about how the SBA may interpret their need, it would be in their best interest to wait to apply for loan forgiveness until we have a little more clarity on how that's going to work. So I wanna get back to the, uh, the form 3509
0: and the issue of need uh, in a moment, um, but you've touched on uh, what's going on in Congress uh, which, which uh, obviously strikes me as an interesting question because it feels like in so many of my episodes, if not all of the podcast episodes over the past several months, I've been talking about the politics impacting all of these topics. Um, Steve, I want to ask you, we, we do talk so often about how politicized everything seems to be these days. I'm wondering whether this issue about PPP loan forgiveness um, is the same. So in other words, will a change in administration in Washington that we see formally take place next month from a Trump administration to a Biden administration actually impact the forgiveness issue or the process or timing of all of this?
2: Uh, I would say the answer to that is a definite maybe. Um, the <laughs> As a good uh, lawyer would say. Yes, uh, the answer to all, correct answer to all legal questions is it depends. <laughs> um, th- but I, I, I should say we could partly know an answer to that as soon as this weekend. Um, one of the things that is in the, the compromise stimulus package that's being discussed in Congress right now is a new round of money for the PPP program, um, along with some other changes like changing the deductibility of expenses that Andrew mentioned earlier, and, and um, we don't exactly know the parameters of what's going to be in that package yet. There's, there's a very brief outline that Senator Mnuchin, who was part of that bipartisan group that, that put the initial proposal together, had, had put out on his website. But there have been some changes in it since then, at least from the news report. So not exactly sure what, what it's going to look like. But to your point, um, the program actually has been politically pretty popular on both sides of the aisle. It uh, was originally an idea, I think it was developed by Marco Rubio, who chairs the Small Business Committee in the Senate, and and sort of expanded from there. And to the extent that there have been, if you want to call them criticisms of the program, it's maybe been that it has benefited larger companies rather than smaller companies. And and going back to that history that Andrew was recounting of how the SBA started to come out with these necessity um you know, statements. Um, one of the earliest of those was in response to some press reports that Shake Shack and Ruth's Chris had gotten $10 million loans, which is the maximum that you could get under the program. And that started to get political blowback. Why do these companies need it? And, and then you started hearing as a result of the political heat from that, uh, you started seeing the SBA, you know, coming out with some pronouncements that started to backtrack on well, maybe you don't really need it after all if you're a public company and you have access to the capital markets. And then maybe you don't really need it after all if you have private equity backing. And then maybe you don't need it after all if you're just a big company. And and you know, by the time they got done with two or three of those pronouncements, a lot of people were just sort of throwing up their hands and saying, hey, there's too much risk here. And which was, I think, probably not in small part, a reason why there was like $130 billion left over that was unused at the end of the program in August because the original appropriation of $350 billion, I think it was, was gone, you know, like gone in 60 seconds. I mean, within three or four weeks that was used and and the program actually had to shut down. And then when Congress came in 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 June and passed that extension and appropriated additional money, Um, that money ended up not all getting used. And I think in no small part because some of the uncertainty that the SBA created with these need determinations and all of that. So, you know, to to get back to your question, the program, broadly speaking, has been popular. There have been some disagreements about, you know, who really the program should be for the benefit of and, and how it should be structured in order to benefit, you know, the people that we want to benefit as opposed to those that we don't. And there are some, discussion in some of the things that i've read about the 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 pending compromise bill that um, there'll be some perhaps some criteria of need like heavy revenues been down more than 25 or 30 percent in a quarter this year compared to what they were previously and that might be a criteria for whether or not you're eligible and there's also some discussion as i understand it of of earmarking some of the money, not the entire appropriation, which I think is in the area of $250 billion, um, but at least part of that being earmarked specifically for smaller companies and to make sure that the money, at least some of it, is is getting allocated to, you know, to, to the, the small companies that, that Congress wants to make sure are being benefited by the program. So long answer to a short question, I apologize. But at a high level, the program is is quite popular on a bipartisan basis, but when you get down into who's gonna benefit and to what extent and how are the mechanics gonna work and some of those kinds of things, then you start to see some policy disagreements and, and, uh, and some nuances in terms of how the program should be structured and we'll probably see more of that if it gets renewed as part of this compromise package.
1: You know, Steve, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Ruth's Chris, because I think that's a perfect example of the danger of letting media take control of the narrative uh, of this program. This was a program that was established. It's the Paycheck Protection Program. It's not the insolvent business protection program. The intent was to give a mechanism for employers to keep their employees on payroll with their benefits and off of state unemployment. And I can't think of a better example than Ruth's Chris than of a, a company that's immediately and severely impacted by the pandemic. We have leisure travel that's reduced, business travel that's reduced. You have restrictions on being able, the number of uh, customers that you're allowed to serve, if you're even allowed to have indoor dining at all. And so the fact that they're a large, well-known uh, company that people may uh, may consider to be well well funded and well capitalized really isn't aligned with what the purposes of the program was. It was to keep their employees with their jobs. And when they gave that money back, they had to lay off a number of people because they didn't have any work for them to do.
2: Yeah. And in fact, there were a number of provisions in the act itself that were targeted toward the restaurant and hotel industry. There were some special exceptions that were put into the act to make it easier for hotels and restaurants particularly larger operations, because some of the waivers had to do with, with uh, operations that had more than one location, for instance, and, and, and things like that. So it wasn't like Congress didn't know that there were hotels and restaurants that were going to be suffering or were suffering as a result of the pandemic. And they actually put some things in the law to, to benefit them. But you're right. Then you had the, 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 you know, the winds of politics started blowing the other direction. And all of a sudden you saw these pronouncements coming out of the SBA about we don't want to have this
0: happen anymore. So popular and bipartisan doesn't necessarily mean simple still. And we keep coming back to that. You referred to an eight some odd page application and all of that. And and as much as I do hate uh, self-serving sounding questions. I do have to ask for those who are unfamiliar with the application uh, the forgiveness uh, application process, is the process Steve something that companies can or should do themselves? Or is that something uh, that they should be working on in consultation with legal counsel or uh, with assistance from a CPA? Uh,
2: The forgiveness application is, is largely uh, based upon payroll information and there's I would say in my judgment anyway I mean we've we've had some questions from from clients and I certainly have worked with clients on trying to figure out exactly how certain things worked particularly as I mentioned before there are a number of safe harbors and exceptions and some of those aren't entirely clear from the four corners of the form and so I've certainly had some involvement with people on that but when it comes to you know running numbers on what was your payroll and your FTE basis. I don't think that's probably the highest and best use of your lawyers, at least not this lawyer. And, and, uh, um, and, and, and that's where I think accountants have been performing a valuable role. I will say that some of the payroll services like ADP, for instance, uh, have also come out and, and have provided payroll information for their customers in a format that will fit right into the PPP application. So yeah, I think it's, it's a little bit of a combined effort, There are some issues where you may want some advice from your counsel to help figure out how things work. There are probably some places where you may want to talk to your accountant to make sure that you're getting the numbers right. And there may be some places where your payroll provider, you know, ADP, Paychecks, et cetera, um, may also be able to assist you. And of course, ultimately, this application goes to your bank. And so, you know, having a conversation with your banker to make sure that the way that you're putting it together and, and getting prepared to submit it to them is, is actually gonna be a format that, that they're gonna be able to take. Steve, at what point does a CPA like yourself uh, get
1: asked to be involved in this process? Well, uh, really back in April when, when our clients were beginning to apply for the PPP loans. And, and you know I think uh, I, I would concur with what, what Steve had said in, in regards to, you know, do you need a CPA or do you need an attorney? Uh, it depends. So the streamlined application, uh, if you have somebody that has some financial acumen, uh, that's something that I think can be handled in-house in, in many instances. Uh, with the easy application, possibly, uh, I definitely think that it, it is at worth worth at least having another set of eyes by a trusted advisor on it before submitting to the bank. If you get into the long-form application, I think that whether it's capacity or capability, you want to get a CPA involved because it is a tax return and it is not simple and it is going to be very time consuming. And if you are the financial officer of a company, you probably have better uses of your time than committing, you know, 20, 30 hours of time, possibly more on getting up to speed with the regulations and the rules for completing the application. Uh, and then also actually doing the, the grunt work to, to get it completed. Uh, from the attorney standpoint, I think that if you're a loan, a borrower that has to fill out the 3509 form because your, your PPP loans or the aggregated PPP loans when you're, with your affiliates is in excess of $2 million, uh, at that point it is definitely worth taking into consideration involving your in-house counsel or uh, outside legal counsel to make sure that you're providing the information that you want to provide with that questionnaire.
0: So obviously the assumption and the
1: hope is that all
0: of the application process and, and everything that goes with it is being done uh, correctly and accurately. Um, but let's look at the the flip side of that. Is there a threat uh, of audit that companies should be concerned about? And does it matter what the size of the loan was um, if the answer is yes? Absolutely. Do you both with jumping yeah. at the gun to try to answer <laughs> That's how excited
2: you were over this question. Steve, start us with this. Yeah, thank you. Um, The SBA has said that they will do a mandatory review of all forgiveness applications that are more than $2 million. And they calculate that $2 million of the borrower together with other loans received by the borrower's affiliates. So we had instances where you had a couple of companies that were under common ownership each of them borrowed less than $2 million, but in the aggregate, they borrowed more. Then there's a box. This actually goes back to the forgiveness form. There's a box on the forgiveness form that you check that says, did you and your affiliates together receive more than $2 million? And that's one place where we have been counseling with clients on the forgiveness form because the rules that determine what's an affiliate are rather complicated. And, and that's one where we definitely have weighed in and, and help clients figure out. Um, but if you check yes on that box, then I think there's something approaching 100% chance that your bank then at some point after you apply for forgiveness is going to send you this form 3509 that we've been talking about. And, and that's a form that, that it's interesting because if you go to the SBA's website and search for the term 3509, you won't find anything. It comes up empty. Um, if you go to the Treasury Department page that deals with the Paycheck Protection Program, They have every other form that the SBA uses posted except for 3509 and 3510. The SBA has deliberately, and I mean deliberately, kept them secret. Now, they are out there in the public domain. You can find them. But they have not ever been officially published by either the SBA or the Department of Treasury uh, and, and, in fact, there's a lawsuit pending against the SBA right now claiming, on that basis, among others, that the form is illegal and can't be used. Um, but the, um, the form nonetheless exists, and the SBA is nonetheless sending it out to people, and, and that is a form that goes to what Andrew talked about at the very beginning of this, the, the necessity certification that borrowers had to make. And it, it purports to, co- it does collect information. It collects a bunch of information um, about financial aspects as well as other semi non financial aspects um, uh, of the borrower's business, including were there orders that ordered you to shut down or impacted your operation of your business, uh, but also things like do you have any 50% shareholders? Does a private equity or venture capital fund own more than 20% of your business? Uh, You know, are you a subsidiary of a public company or a public company yourself? And a number of questions like that. Um, So you get some sense of of that the SBA is looking at some of these things. Now, interestingly, uh, just last week, the SBA came out with another FAQ. They hadn't issued an FAQ in months. um, And they just came out with one, I think, in response to some of the, the really loud public criticism of the SBA, and this new form. And and you could see him trying to assuage some of that critique by saying, you know, we realize that this, you know, there are other factors that would go into deciding whether or not something was necessary. And we realize that we have to look at this as of the time the loan application was submitted and not, you know, what happened in the second quarter or third quarter. Um, but nonetheless, we view this as a starting point to collect the necessary information. So I think they've at least to some extent uh, obviously recognize that they've been sued. And it was the association of general contractors that sued. And obviously the construction industry was also pretty badly hit by the, by the pandemic. And, and so they, on behalf of their, their, uh, their association members have have really taken the forefront in in some of the challenges to this. So yes, if you check yes to that, that $2 million question on your forgiveness application, I think you're undoubtedly, unless the SBA loses this court case, going to be asked to submit some additional information to get to the question of necessity.
0: Andrew, does the same concern exist uh, about
1: a possible audit even for loans that are less than $2 million? Absolutely. The safe harbor threshold of $2 million only applies to the borrower's certification of need. Everything else on their application uh, for the PPP loan and their forgiveness application is fair game for examination by the the SBA and other regulatory agencies. And the speed at which this program was rolled out makes it just absolutely rife with fraud. And we've already seen several instances of the SBA uncovering fraudulently obtained PPP loans. Most of those are under the, the $2 million threshold. And I think we've only touched the tip of the iceberg with the amount of bad behavior that may have occurred uh, with, with people obtaining PPP loans. And so I think as time goes on, we are, we are going to see more and more of these instances uh, coming to light. And I think that, uh, that a borrower should not uh, be sloppy with the information that they provide to the, the SBA. Just because they feel that their loan is under a a dollar threshold, that it's not going to be looked at. Great.
2: There have been a handful of prosecutions already for for fraud in the the applications. And I will say, those have not been borderline, you know, was was it necessary or was it not necessary? Those have been where people have made up their payrolls and borrowed money that they weren't entitled to or taking the money and gone out and bought expensive cars rather than paying their employees or paying their rent. So, uh, you know, those have been pretty clear cases of fraud. Um, It'll be interesting to see if it starts to, you know, come down to cases that are closer than that and and what the government's attitude is. So before
0: I uh, leave our listeners with the final takeaways from both of you, I just want to ask uh, one follow-up question on the issue of taxability and deductibility. And I know Andrew, you started mentioning this uh, a little earlier. What is the general rule on whether companies can deduct certain PPP
1: costs uh, used for loan forgiveness? Well, this may change by the time this goes to air. As the uh, as the rules exist as of today, December 17th, uh, the expenses that a borrower uses to qualify for the PPP loan forgiveness are not deductible uh, to them on their income tax return. And that is going to be non-deductible in the year that those expenses would have ordinarily been reported, regardless of when the borrower applies for or receives forgiveness from their lender. However, the Bipartisan Act, which uh the Congress is attempting to attach to the federal spending bill, which must be passed before midnight tomorrow to prevent a government shutdown, does contain a provision that aligns the tax treatment of PPP loan forgiveness with the intent of the CARES Act. It was explicitly written into the CARES Act that the loan forgiveness would be not taxable to the borrower. But the IRS did a bit of an end around, and they issued technical guidance stating that They would not tax the loan forgiveness but the borrower would not be able to deduct those expenses that were used to qualify for loan forgiveness thereby making it taxable but I think that uh, I think that all of us are are really hoping with our our fingers crossed and with bated breath that this bill will pass and I am feeling fairly optimistic that it will um, the the provision about tax-exempt treatment of the loan forgiveness was written into the CARES Act for a reason. This is how Congress wanted it to be handled, and the IRS uh, took a different approach on it. And I do believe Congress is going to realign their position with what the intent of
2: the legislation was. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It, the The IRS position has been incredibly unpopular on both sides of the aisle, and I would be surprised if something does pass that it won't include that. If it, for some reason, didn't, which I would be very surprised by, but if for some reason it didn't, since it was an IRS ruling, the new administration could also reverse it pretty quickly come January 20th. So I don't think that's likely to be around for very long. And that would be a reason if I were a a borrower, I wouldn't be in a rush to file my 2020 taxes um, because you're gonna get some clarity on that. And as Andrew said, we may have it in the next couple of days, but if not, I I would hold off on filing until you gave the new administration a chance to take a look at that issue and make some determinations, because you you very well would get some relief on that issue.
0: So strange to hear someone say the IRS is not a popular body. So strange <laughs> to hear that. Um, all right. Well, th- I mean, this has certainly been uh, extremely uh, informative and and useful. Uh, you both have uh, provided a lot of uh, great food for thought. I want to leave. Ah, uh, today with a couple of takeaways from each of you on the issue of PPP loan forgiveness, or what we might be expecting to see come 2021, uh, Andrew, I'll start with you. Any uh,
1: final takeaways? Yeah, uh, I would say that that a universal truth that we've had with this program since its inception is uh, be nimble and be prepared to change as the. The regulatory uh, and legislative winds may, may blow the direction of this program. Uh, we, we had a, a period of very intense and rapid change at the onset, and then a period of tranquility. And I think now we're, we're starting to ramp back up with, with more change. And in addition to businesses obtaining loan forgiveness for round one of the PPP. Uh, as, as Steve had mentioned earlier, there is a provision for a second round of funding included in the stimulus bill. However, the the uh, eligibility guidelines are going to be different. And uh, as would be true with the first round of PPP, this is all subject to change. And we're gonna have new Congress in session. We're gonna have new administration in the White House. Uh, I think it's it's reasonable to expect that we're not done yet seeing change to this program. So. Pay attention, stay tuned, reach out to your trusted advisors, attorneys, CPAs, um, you know, don't take your eye off the ball. Stephen, uh,
0: give you the last word on uh, any takeaways.
2: Well, I, I agree with what Andrew said. I think that there are going to be open issues with regard to the current iteration of the program and and the to some extent, those issues are just starting. Like this new Form 3509, which is really just starting to get rolled out. So there's going to be things that borrowers are going to going to have to respond to, uh, and and as we talked about before, are going to be wanting to talk to their their advisors, lawyers, and accountants about. Uh, and then I think you know there will be probably some kind of new PPP program. It may be a little more limited than what we had before, but it's, it's definitely going to be there. And so I think it does make sense to keep your eyes open. And I wouldn't be surprised if when the new administration takes office, uh, particularly if the Democrats are able to pick up the two Senate seats in Georgia, that we're going to see another round of, of stimulus of some kind, you know, in the first quarter of next year, in addition to what's on the table right now. And there's likely to be some small business elements in that too. So I, I think it does make sense to, to stay tuned and stay aware of what's going on because there's likely to be some things in there that are going to be to the benefit of small and mid-sized businesses. That's terrific. Uh,
0: Andrew Howe, Stephen Dickinson, I can't thank you enough for uh, joining the podcast today, and I suspect there'll be more to talk about on this very issue uh, in the next few weeks, uh, certainly. Thank you both for joining.
2: Thank you. Thank you,
0: We will certainly be hearing a lot more on this in the coming weeks and unquestionably right after the new year. I hope this was helpful to you in the meantime, and thank you all, as always, for listening to the podcast. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.